Good morning. My name is Lauren Reed. I'm John Ferris. I'm Philip Chan. And we are part of the CYA ministry. We'll be reading from several scripture passages today. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew 4, 12 through 13. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew 11, 2 through 6, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John 11, 1 to 3 and 5 to 7. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. John 11, 17 to 21. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to, com to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Welcome, church family. If you're new this morning to Lake Avenue, we're, you're catching us in the middle of a 10-week series called Rooted. And, and those who are here know about the series and know about Rooted. Uh, in fact, when we kicked things off, I believe we had 1,100 people sign up in 120 small groups. I've heard that number may have grown to 2,000 by now. Praise God for that. And so this morning, uh, I got assigned the happy topic <laughs> in Rooted, uh, which is answering the question, where is God in the midst of suffering? Now, when I was getting ready to prepare for today's message, I came across the text message. You know when you 
get the memories of the day, and I had taken a screenshot of it almost seven years ago today. And if you could put the text message up, it gives a little about my story and our family's story. Don't know if you can read that, but it was a text message that my wife, Michelle, sent to me from Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. Our youngest son, Trey, uh, was in the hospital room, and uh, there were more doctors and more nurses than you could almost possibly count who were in that room that day. And she writes that Trey was having seizures again, that he was trembling, and now there's three doctors, there's eight people, and if you look at the bottom, there's now 14 people in that small hospital room. Now, if you know our story, you know that this wasn't our first rodeo. <laughs> in fact, Trey had been in Children's Hospital and ICU more times than I could possibly count. Uh, in fact, it wasn't uncommon for Michelle and I to be a tag team where one of us would stay in the hospital while the other one went to work or drove our daughter Mackenzie to school and allowed her to do the after-school activities, and we would spend the night there, one of us alone, while the other one was at home, and sometimes that would go on for days on end. So what do you do when there's nothing you can do? What do you do when the situation isn't going to change, and it is the way it is, and that's the way it is? Trey was born with a non-immune system. And so within six months of his birth, he was on life support with bilateral pneumonia. And we rushed to the hospital. By the third grade, he was diagnosed with a rare neurological disorder called ESES. It's kind of sister uh, disease to epilepsy. And much like epilepsy, where it involves uncontrollable physical activity, ESES is a little bit different in that it's constant uncontrollable physical activity. In fact, when the doctors looked at his uh, EKG and his brain waves, the brain waves would not only cross in different lobes of the brain, which wasn't unusual for an epileptic patient, but for the very first time, they said, we watched his brain waves transfer hemispheres of the brain, and we'd never have seen that before. In fact, the doctors went on to explain that if you don't treat ESES, it's kind of like white noise, and your brain can't rest during normal sleep cycles. And so to cope with that condition over time, the brain starts to shut down and will eventually turn in to a vegetative state. In fact, we had doctors tell us that if they weren't able to control the symptoms, that Trey wouldn't make it until he's 12 years old. And if his body made it that far, his brain certainly couldn't survive. So what do you do when there's nothing to do? When it is the way that it is and nothing will change? We learned a few years later that Trey's symptoms were actually more complicated than we thought. <laughs> the treatments that he was receiving weren't totally working, and so he would go in and out of having seizures. There would be times that he would black out at school. 
that he would bolt from the classroom, and that he would have breathing disorders to the point that we have to drive him to the hospital. On the way, we didn't know if he would live because he would stop breathing for minutes at a time. We were devastated. It was a dark season of our lives. By the fifth grade, Trey was assigned by the school district a one-to-one nurse. In fact, there were months at a time that he couldn't go to school, and when we had to remove furniture out of his room because of fear that he would have a seizure and hurt himself. And sometimes his seizures wouldn't last just for a moment, but they would last up to a week or two weeks long where he would lose speech for days. He would thrash around uncontrollably. So what do you do in those types of situations? There are some problems that just can't be solved. There are some tensions that no matter what you do, you can't smooth them over. And there's some times when there's no resolution because there's just circumstances where nothing can be done. And I remember a few days after I got that text message, I was alone with Trey and it was the morning and the doctors made their rounds and they came in and they pulled me aside and gave me a report and then they told me something I'll never forget. It's when I hit rock bottom. Now Michelle and I have been dealing with this for over 10 years and so we kind of realized that this was our new normal. This was just kind of how life was going to be and we kind of had our systems and our support things in place and we were kind of bumping along. For those who know me, I'm pretty calm, cool and collected but when I got this news from the doctor, I just about lost it. I didn't know what to do. I felt overwhelmed. I felt like the world was closing in on me and the doctor told me, he said, look, we've run all the tests that we can run. We've given him all the experimental treatments that we can possibly give him. We've had him see all the specialists there is to see. There's nothing more we can do. We can't keep him here indefinitely, so you're gonna need to take him home. And this weekend, this particular seizure was worse than any of the ones that we had had before. In fact, Trey was moving around so uncontrollably and thrashing that they had to put a posy bed. It's essentially a hospital bed with a tent on top of it. So the patient can't move around and hurt themselves. And I remember thinking, you want me to take him home? How in the world are Michelle and I going to manage this? Yeah, we've got people helping out and a support system in place, but (laughs) it's not ready for this. And I remember being alone and I needed somebody just to come and sit by me. Michelle was at work, so she couldn't come. And the first thing I did was I texted my guy's small group and I said, I don't know what you're doing, but if you can leave work early, I need you to come down to the hospital and be with me. And three of them were able to make it. 
And I remember as they came and they kind of staggered when they arrived and when each one came, I would go downstairs and sit outside a children's hospital in the playground <laughs> where other kids were playing and I just shared my story with them. I don't remember them saying much, but as I told my story, I remember crying and weeping out loud and wondering, what are these people thinking about me? <laughs> and then the other one would came and I would still say the same story and recount what had happened and I would cry again out loud. And then the third one came and the same thing happened. So what do you do when there's nothing you can do, when it is the way it is and you can't change the circumstances you're in? So why am I telling you this sad, sad, sad story? The reason is that there will be a set of circumstances in your life, there'll be a season of your life, it might happen once, for some of you it'll happen more than once, where there is nothing you can do and your dreams and your ideas for the future have slipped away. For some of you, it might be relationally. You're in a marriage that's unfulfilled and you don't want to get a divorce. He won't get a divorce. She won't get a divorce and no one wants to change and so that's just the way it is. Nothing's going to change. For some of you, it might be financially. Your financial dreams aren't going to come true and they're never going to come true. In fact, you may be a small business owner and your business was just kind of getting by and then COVID hit and you emptied your savings and you lost everything and that business or that job is not coming back. For some of you, it's professional. You were laid off. You lost your job and now you're stuck trying to reinvent yourself. In fact, the whole entire industry has gone away and you have to find a new career path. So what are you gonna do? There's no going back, there's no getting that job. So what do you do when there's nothing you can do? For some of you, it might be a health issue. The doctors diagnosed whatever it was that you have and it's, you're not gonna die from it, but there is no cure. It's painful, it's chronic. And there's no amount of treatments that are gonna make it go better, you just have to live with it and get by with it. Nothing's gonna change, it's what it's gonna be for the foreseeable future. For others of you, it might be academic. You didn't get enough high enough score on that interest exam or your grades weren't good enough in high school to get into the college that you wanted to get into or the grad program that you wanted to do and there's no repeating high school or doing your undergraduate program again. And so that ship has sailed. So what are you gonna do when there's nothing that you can do? For some of you, maybe you've lost a loved one. I've sat by several of you who've lost a spouse and some of you may have lost a child. And they tell you that time, over time, things will get better. <laughs> but they don't. And every time you crawl into bed or walk into that room, you're reminded that person is no longer there. And you're alone 
and you cry out to God saying, God, where are you in all of this? And you can't bring that person back, so you just have to move forward. So what do you do in the times like that? And then there's the whole internal battle where we get jealous of other people. (laughs) It's easy to get angry, it's easy to get bitter. And it's very easy to compare, isn't it? (laughs) And you know what's really irritating, especially if you're in the church and you're part of a Sunday school class or a small group, is they oftentimes have a regular devoted time to prayer and praise requests. (laughs) And if you've ever been going through a difficult season of life and sit there and hear people share, it can be tough. And everybody else, it seems like, is reminding you, not on purpose, but everything they say and everything they share seems like they have no idea what you're going through, and the problems that they're facing don't even get on the scale. In fact, their lives are so perfect, and you kind of walk away and you say, God, why not me? I remember sitting in our young married Sunday school class that Michelle and I helped start, Home Builders. And it was about four or five years after our marriage, and I remember what seemed like kind of a barrage every week of a new announcement of somebody getting pregnant, and people would celebrate because that was where we were in life. And for Michelle and I, it was a difficult thing to hear because we didn't know if we'd ever be parents. After four miscarriages, we didn't know if that could be us. And so when people would share about being pregnant and even their second child, I remember driving home from church one day and looking at her and saying, will that ever be us? Will we ever be parents? And that's just the way it is. And there's nothing we could do about it. And for some of you, You can identify with that sentiment. (laughs) Or you've walked with somebody you care deeply about who's experienced significant pain and suffering in life. And to get to the epicenter of the emotional kind of center of this struggle, you ask at times, where is God in the middle of this? There's the moments where if we could just have the calm assurance that God was there, that he knew what we were going through. He didn't have to do anything, but if I just had some sort of sign that he knew, I would be okay. In fact, some of you would be praying to God and even not sure that he existed. (laughs) In fact, some of you have asked yourself, how can there be a good and loving God and allow this to happen? And you start beginning to question your faith and wondering if God is even real. If you're in this place, I want to speak specifically to you today. I want to bring you kind of to the end and the point of this message and tell you this. In answering the question where God is in the midst of suffering, I want to tell you that God has not forgotten about you. God's not punishing you. And God hasn't abandoned you. God hasn't forgotten about you, even though it seems like he's forgotten about you. 
God's not punishing you, although you might think, is he trying to teach me a lesson, or what have I done to deserve this? And God hasn't abandoned you, although it feels like he's nowhere to be found. And one of the things, if you've ever been in that situation, before we jump kind of to the heart of this, for whatever reason, I think there's a little bit of hypocrisy in all of us when we start to question our faith during times of great pain and suffering. And it's in all of us. And it's something I, before we kind of dive into what I'm going to talk about today, I want us to consider. And here it is. We've all done it. For whatever reason... When we hear about somebody else that's going through a difficult circumstance, whenever we hear about a tragic loss, it doesn't really significantly impact impact our faith if we don't know who the person is that's going through it. In fact, many times we hear a prayer request or something that's happened in another part of the country or another part of the world, and we may stop and feel sad about that individual or that circumstances and pray for them. In fact, we might even go a step further if we, they're an acquaintance or somebody we know, we might send them a personal email or a sympathy note, but after that's done, we kind of go on the rest of our day, don't we? <laughs> you know, we're thinking about where we're going for lunch or what store we got to do to run that errand, and we just kind of move on with it. But something that's interesting is that when that same set of circumstance hits us or somebody close to us that we love, it is devastating. It's emotionally overwhelming at times. And we question God, how can you possibly allow that to happen? And our faith starts to unravel. And we wonder, does God even know that I exist? Does God even know what I'm going through? Does he even know my name? And if you're in that season of life or that set of circumstances and God has your undivided attention, I want to tell you today that you can take to the bank that God loves you, that he knows his name, your name, and that he cares for you. And the reason I can say that with confidence is that John, the disciple of Jesus, the very person as an old man who wrote the most famous scripture verse that I think ever existed, John 3.16, that same John who looked in the face of his Savior and said, when I look into the eyes of Jesus, I see love. And it's just not any kind of love that fades away. It's love that lasts forever. And John, who penned these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That very God who loves you who cares about you and knows your name. If you're in a situation where you're thinking, gosh, what did I do to deserve this? What is Jesus or God trying to teach me in the middle of this? I can tell you with assurance that God loves you, he knows your name, and he knows what you're going through. 
because he sacrificed his son and poured out his anger, his punishment on him for your sins because that's how much you matter to him. Amen. So I'm going to go through kind of three people I want to talk about today, and I'm going to go quickly through it. I'm not going to read through the verses. You kind of heard that earlier. And I want to illustrate the point that we're talking about today, about pain and suffering, and kind of anchor that with you. And, and to illustrate this idea of where is God in the midst of suffering. And the first person I want to talk about is John the Baptist. Now, before I, I, I read this story, it's one of those things that when you read the Bible to fully understand it, you've got to have a map right next to you, okay? So I'm going to kind of set the overall context of this story with uh, John the Baptist. Uh, I'm going to read the key verse, and I'm going to show you a map so you kind of understand what he was going through and what was happening at the time. Now, the story starts with John the Baptist in prison. In fact, Matthew kind of gives that account right after Jesus was baptized. Uh, and, and he says that uh, Jesus had heard about it uh, as he kind of leaves the wilderness and started his public ministry. And the reason that John was in prison was because part of his ministry of baptism and repentance was to go up and down the Jordan River uh, uh, calling people to repentance and calling out their sin. And so he used to call out some of the political leaders of the day on this. In fact, King Herod, who was the king in that area, he was the son of the King Herod that killed all the babies in the Christmas story. His son, Herod Antipas, Antipas was the king, and he had a, a niece named Herodias. And Herodias ended up marrying King Herod Antipas's brother, Herod Philip, and it was kind of a big deal. And, you know, kind of, you got to read your Bibles. There's interesting stuff like this, right? And so after a little while, uh, Herod's niece, Herodias, uh, uh, his brother, Herod Philip, goes off to Rome on a trip. And Herodias has an affair with King Herod's other brother while he's gone. I mean, this is kind of weird in any kind of sense. In fact, it was a big scandal back then in any day and age. There was no internet, there was no kind of social media, but everyone knew about it, and it was salacious. And so Herodias's husband, uncle, was kind of called out by John the Baptist, and John used to use her as an example, and King Herod, and King Herod kind of went with it. He wasn't bothered by it, but Herodias, she, she couldn't get over it, and so she had her husband, uncle, throw John into jail. And it wasn't just any jail. He threw him in jail in the farthest easternmost part of that kingdom, east of the Dead Valley, in the middle, east of the Dead Sea, in the middle of the desert. And if you've ever been to that part of the world, you know how desolate it can be, how hot it can be. It was no fun. And so the story picks up uh, uh, with this situation where John's in the desert. Uh, Matthew 4, verse 12, he said, so John the Baptist is put in prison and he's left there. And when Jesus heard that was John was in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, and he went and lived in Capernaum. So when Jesus first heard that John the Baptist was in prison, what did he do? His first instinct wasn't to go visit him. 
<laughs> his first instinct wasn't to go send him a note or try to get him out of jail. He left him. <laughs> uh, in fact, if you're reading your Bible, you're like going through this and you're thinking, boy, how interesting this is that Jesus kind of heard about him in prison and kind of left and moved to Capernaum, and you might miss it. And so let me kind of throw up a, a map here, see if you can do that. Uh, that's kind of a map of the Holy Land. I don't know how clear it is, but uh, Jesus was up there near the Sea of Galilee on the top of the map, a little bit to the, your left. And Machaerus is located all the way to the right of the Dead Sea down there, and so there's quite a distance between the two. And as you kind of look it over, you can see that uh, instead of going down to Machaerus, John actually went north, and if you could go to the next slide, and then the one after that, he actually went the opposite direction to Capernaum. Now, if Jesus wasn't far enough away between Nazareth and Machaerus, going to Capernaum was even farther away. And there you have John the Baptist, a relative of Jesus, who was sitting there in a desert dungeon, and Jesus goes the opposite a direction. What is up with that? <laughs> and that is how you feel. And that is how I feel when I'm going through the desert and it feels like Jesus is going in the opposite direction. Now, it gets worse, okay? Uh, if you could kind of see the view from Macaris, you could put that picture up. It's a desolate place. In fact, uh, you can go to modern-day Jordan today and visit the ruins of Herod's fortress that was there. Uh, you can still see the foundations, but if you look around the hillside, there is really hardly any bushes or shrubs you can see. It is dry. And if you've ever been in the Holy Land or gone to Masada by the Dead Sea uh, in the early spring or summer, you know how hot it can get. I mean, it is hot, H-E double hockey sticks, hot. And so there is John, and it's a pretty view, but it's not a view I'm sure I'd want. And then if you could put up the next slide, this is the view of Capernaum. Jesus is by the beach. He's north of the lake. John is sitting in a desert dungeon somewhere and Jesus is under a palm tree, under an umbrella with his guys. I'm sure he has a drink in his hand. And John is wondering, where in the heck are you? Don't you know about my situation? Don't you know about what I'm going through? And, and you're just kind of hanging out and doing your own thing. Do you even know that I'm here? And the story goes on in Matthew 11. In fact, as Matthew records it, uh, he says this. Actually, not quite that verse. He says that John started to ask some questions. In fact, John had been in the prison for over a year. In fact, some people say up to a year and a half, and he hadn't heard anything from Jesus. So John does what all of us do when extended time goes on and nothing changes is we start to have doubts. And John started to have doubts, and so he, he asks, is Jesus really the one who's the Messiah? Is Jesus really the one who 
I was sent to prepare the way for? Come on, Jesus, if, if, if I'm in prison, your own cousin, the one who worked with you and set the table for you, is here and you won't even acknowledge me and know that I'm here? Are you really who you say you are? And then John, he sent his disciples to go ask Jesus this question. <laughs> and his disciples were already with Jesus because back then when you were in prison, if you didn't have a group of people bringing you food, bringing you water, kind of dealing with your basic provisions, you were just left there to die and starve to death. And, and so John's disciples were around him and I can see kind of John kind of fuming about this situation and kind of wondering what's going on and getting impatient. And I'm sure his disciples were just as miffed as he was and felt like, how could Jesus do this to our beloved leader, our beloved prophet, John the Baptist? And so he sends his disciples away to go and find Jesus, to track him down and to ask him, are you really who you are? Are you really who you say that you are? Are you the Messiah? Are you the chosen one? And I won't go through the story, but John's disciples find him in Capernaum as he's healing and doing different things with his guys, just kind of hanging out there. And he asks him that question. He says, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the chosen one? And Jesus responds in this way. He says, let me tell you about all the things I'm doing for everybody else. <laughs> I make the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. I let the captives go. Well, maybe don't share that part with him. <laughs> I'm healing people, I'm looking after the poor. Look at everything I'm doing. I want you, John, to believe in me and to trust in me because everything I'm doing for everybody else. And that's our life, isn't it? When we're going through it, when we're in a dark season, when the circumstances around us don't change, we see everything that God's doing in everybody else's life and wonder, God, why aren't you doing it for me? In other words, don't misunderstand God's silence as forgetting about you. If John the Baptist can have questions, so can you. And then Jesus leaves John's disciples with this last verse, and it's a powerful one. If you could put it up. The verse is, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. In other words, keep trusting in me even though I feel like I'm not there. Keep trusting in me even though I haven't answered your prayers the way you want them answered. Keep trusting in me and believing in me because what I'm doing for everyone else. And then Jesus does an interesting thing. As soon as John's disciples leave, he, in the very next verses, he tells the crowd and describes who John is like and 
He says this, he says, truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. John was the greatest man who ever walked the earth in Jesus' eyes. In fact, was he greater than the prophets? Yes, Jesus thought he was greater than the prophets. Was he greater than Jesus' own disciples? Yes, Jesus thought he was greater than his own disciples. Was he greater than Jesus' mother Mary? Yes, Jesus even thought that John the Baptist was greater than his mother Mary. In Jesus' eyes, he was the greatest human ever to walk the planet. Now, when you wonder if Jesus knows your name, if he cares about you, if he understands what you're going through and he seems far, far away, and you start to question your faith and whether or not there is even a real God, whether or not Jesus is who he said he was, I want to tell you that you can take hope. That if John the Baptist, the greatest person who ever walked the earth, somebody who Jesus loved, felt that way, he can handle your questions. He can handle your doubts. But don't misinterpret God's silence that he doesn't know about you because he didn't forget about John the Baptist and he won't forget about you. Now the second person I wanna talk about this morning is Lazarus. <laughs> and a lot of us who grew up in church are familiar with Lazarus and know who he is and know that story very well. And in fact, it happened on the very spot where Jesus finds out about Lazarus and him being sick, uh, where John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And so Jesus was in that immediate area and he hears from, 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 from people that uh, know about Lazarus being sick. And uh, we pick up in John eleven three where uh, John writes and he says, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now imagine if some people came up to you and said, the one you love is sick has just gotten in a car accident. Well, you would, if you're a parent, you'd probably think immediately about your kids, maybe your spouse. And so Mary and Martha just walked up to Jesus and said, the one that you loved is sick. I mean, you would have to be on that inner circle, on that very short list of people that were close to Jesus where he didn't even have to say his name. You could just walk up and said, the one that you loved is sick. And he knew instantly who that was. And Jesus does an interesting thing. In fact, as the story goes on, Jesus, it says that Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, what do you think you would do if you found someone you loved was sick or was in a car accident? Well, my guess is you would rush immediately to the hospital. You would go over to their home and sit by their side. And instead, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, we're gonna wait here two more days. I can just imagine his disciples standing up when they heard the news and Jesus says, hold on, hold on, sit back down. <laughs> and they're like, aren't we going? No, we're not going, we're gonna wait. His disciples ask, you know, but he's dying. He's sick. Yeah, yeah, I know. But Lazarus can handle it. Mary and Martha can handle it. They'll be angry, and they were. They'll judge me, and they did. They'll not understand what I'm doing, and they didn't. And Jesus waited 
two days, and Lazarus got sicker and sicker and sicker, and he died. And Jesus loved him. Don't misunderstand your suffering as God trying to punish you. There are times where God doesn't come through the way you want him to go through. There are times where you just want relief from that situation, there's no relief in sight. And the outcome that you feared most actually takes place and you wonder, does God know my name? Does he know who I am? Does he even care? Does he love me? And God loved John the Baptist and God loved Lazarus and he loves you too. He's not trying to teach you a lesson. He's not angry with you and trying to discipline you. He loves you. And he wants the best for you. Now the third person I want to talk about this morning, it's actually Paul the Apostle. (laughs) Now if you know the background of Paul's life, he actually started out as being the chief persecutor of the early church. He would He was Saul at the time, and he would go around in Israel, and he would hunt down new Christians, part of this movement called the Way. And he would find out who they were, and he would arrest them, and he would throw them in prison, or he would stone them just simply because of what they believed. And then Paul, who was the only apostle who wasn't part of Jesus' disciples, he didn't share in Jesus' earthly ministry, but as he was on his way to the road at Damascus, he saw Jesus in the form of a spirit, and his life was transformed forever, and God recommissioned him to share the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrections to the Gentile nations. And, And when he had this revelation, and he goes back to Jerusalem and knocks on the doors of the different church leaders, they open it up and see him there, and they say, whoa, whoa, this has got to be a joke. (laughs) He says, no, 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 teach me all that you have. I've been called by God to do this. And I can only imagine the shame and the guilt that Paul must have felt when he talked to family members and close loved ones of the people that he had arrested and the people that he had killed and looked them in the eyes. There were no words he could possibly say. That same Paul, when he started to preach, word got out quickly, and the same religious leaders who had commissioned them to persecute and kill Christians now wanted to persecute and kill him. And so it wasn't uncommon for him to be in certain cities and teaching in the synagogues or the public square, and he'd have to leave town at night just to flee for his life. This very same Paul who was shipwrecked multiple times and didn't know if he would live, writes these very words to the church at Corinth. In his second letter, he writes this. He says, Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. Now that word comfort is not the kind of comfort that is sympathy or empathy with a pat on the head or you know, a side hug and you can stay in there, you can hang on. 
This was the kind of comfort that was energizing, that was empowering. That when you got this kind of comfort, it would kind of steal you to get through, to sustain whatever you were going through. And so Paul, as he's writing about his own circumstances, he says, I want you to view God as the father of compassion, the God of all comfort. Now what's amazing to me is that Paul describes God this way. When later on in that same letter, 12 chapters later, he talks about having a thorn in his side. A thorn in his side that God, for whatever reason, had allowed him to suffer, and we don't know specifically what it is, but most theologians believe that it was something that was prolonged, something that lasted for a while, that was painful, and it was embarrassing. Some think it might be seizures. Other people think that it might be some eye disease or a skin infection, but it was something that wouldn't go away. In fact, Paul asked God to take it away, and he chose not to. And in this very letter, God opens up with God. You're the father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts me in all my troubles, not just some of my troubles, just not of any of my troubles, in all of my troubles, you comfort me. And then when God gives that promise, he attaches it to a purpose. And he says this, the reason why I've come to comfort you is so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. In other words, I want to comfort you so that you will go and comfort others. I want to comfort, comfort you in the middle of your situation so that you can go and comfort others. Now, if you've ever been in a situation where somebody who's gone through something that you've gone through walks into the room, meets you at the hospital, calls you on the phone, there is a bond between people that have gone through and suffered the same thing that's instant and immediate. And if you've gone through that situation, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so what Paul is saying is that I comfort those that so they may comfort others, is that when you go through suffering, when you go through times of your life where you don't know where God is, if this ever gonna end, if anything is gonna change, when you've been with somebody who's been there and you're still there, no words are necessary. You look eye to eye to them and you don't even have to say anything because they get it. They know what you're going through. And there's something life-giving when you've suffered and gone through something and you're with somebody who needs comforting. It is life-giving for the person being comforted. And if you're in that situation, suddenly you realize there's a purpose for what I went through. Something good could come out of what I'm experiencing. To be able to be face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball with somebody and to share your story and know that they get it and they understand. And your story may still be going. 
Your situation may not change, but it's gone on long enough where it's become your reality, your new normal, and you've kind of learned to live through it, and you have hope again, and you have joy in life, and you've adjusted, and they look at you and they say, there is a way out. And then he goes on, and Jesus says this, or Paul says this, For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. In other words, to the extent that you suffer, you can comfort others who are suffering too. In fact, a lot of scholars look at that part that talks about Jesus' suffering and they say it's more than just Jesus suffering at the end of life, but it's Jesus in his human nature has gone through all suffering that we've gone through that he's been, he's experienced what it feels like to be cold, he's experienced what it feels like to be hot. He, he's, he's stayed up night thinking and wishing that tomorrow won't come, that he understands what we're going through, that he knows what it means to suffer, to be in a circumstance where nothing else can change. And through that and in that, he's empowered to help others and to comfort others. Don't misunderstand God's apparent absence that he's abandoned you and he's no longer there. God sends other people to be with you. In fact, I love how my sister-in-law described it when she was a kid and kind of bantered around our family is that other people are like God with skin on. In fact, one of the kind of amazing things as we close up this morning is that not only is it comforting to the person being comforted when we've gone through sufferings, when we've gone through heartache, and we sit down with them, but it's also comforting to the people who've gone through it and offering the comforting. It's life-giving to both. One of the things that's been a real privilege for Michelle and I and our family is to tell the story about Trey. <laughs> and there is a happy ending to it. His condition hasn't changed, but it's been over six years since he's had a seizure and been in the hospital. Amen. In fact, if you met Trey and know him, you would never know what happened to him and in fact, I, I have a picture I want to show. It's, it's one that I've put up on my personal Zoom account. So when people call and uh, we're doing business and they see the picture of both of us, we're at the trailhead of Lake Sabrina and the High Sierra is just outside of Bishop. Now, when I grew up, hiking and going backpacking the High Sierras was something my dad and I used to always do, and we loved it, and our whole family would go. My mom would stay at home, said you can't plug the, the curlers into the pine trees. <laughs> but it was just something we did every summer, and I remember being in the middle of it and wondering, would I ever get to do that with Trey? And I let that dream go away because if he were to have an episode or a seizure when we were several miles back in the backcountry where there's no hospitals, no medical personnel, I don't know what I would do. And about three years ago, 
one of Trey's friends and a good family friend of ours, we were able to go, and so we took this picture, and so it's a reminder of me of God's faithfulness, that God hasn't forgotten about me, that God is not punishing me, and that God hasn't abandoned me. And one of the things I love to do is tell people this story, and Michelle and I have had the unique opportunity where people who've lost children or have dealt with chronic things with their kids, where they, they, they turn to us and they say, I can't, no one else gets it, but you understand. And at that moment, what we went through has purpose. It has meaning. That Jesus comforted us so that we may comfort others. One last observation before we end our time this morning. The only reason that Michelle and I were able to make it through what we went through was the men and women who are part of this church, the people in our small group, the people in our Bible study, our family. When we needed them most, they were there. And the reason they were there was because they were there already. Amen? If there's anything I want to leave you with, it's this. If you're not in a small group, if you're not part of a community, get involved because it's a way that God can use you, through you, and with others to walk this journey called life. We've got over 120 small groups that are with Rooted. That's amazing. More than the curriculum and what we're going through is the fact that people are together sharing their life story together. You could throw the curriculum out, substitute anything you want together is that real life is happening and that's how Christians were meant to bed, to live. You can't do this life without other people. You can't just show up on Sunday morning and watch on Zoom and think, you know what, that's enough. You've gotta get involved, you gotta get plugged in. In fact, a pastor I heard say this, he said, circles are better than rows. Circles are better than rows. I mean, Matthew John's sitting and saying, Jeep, I make a living talking to people in rows. You can't say that, but I'm telling you, circles are better in rows. One of the things I love about this church is the history of, of, of adult communities and small groups where people are around tables and they're sharing life with one another and they're praying with one another and they're going to hospitals with another, they're celebrating with one another, they're crying with one another. And that's where real life happens. Where is God in the midst of suffering? He's there, he's present. And he does that through you, and he does that through me and each other. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, you are the God who's the all-knowing God. You care for us, you love us, you know what we're going through at times, God, when we don't think that you know, and we don't think that you care, and that you're the farthest away possible. Lord, I pray that you strengthen us with the comfort that you promise, that you allow us to speak into one another's lives, to build each other up, to walk alongside, to give hope where there's no hope, 
And in that, Lord, we will praise your name. Amen.